Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. John H. Rex. He's a chief medical officer for a company called F2G Limited. Um, It's an antifungal biotech company. And uh, John studies uh, antimicrobial resistance or antibacterial resistance, which is going to be the focus of the podcast. So uh, welcome, John. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So tell me, um, is there a difference, by the way, in antimicrobial versus antibacterial resistance? I, I use both terms, and I know one's probably a layman's term, but that's the first question. Well, antimicrobial resistance, you know, microbe, broadly, really refers to any living organism. So it could be a fungus, it could be a parasite, uh, it could be a virus, it could be a bacterium. When you say antibacterial resistance, you're, you're coning down to that segment of the, the tree of life. Uh, and it, it, you, you tend to have to tend to have to do that. Solving one problem doesn't solve the other problems. Uh, I mean, the drivers are similar. You know, the reasons for resistance are the same across all of the different varieties. But the solutions and also the, the relative impacts different. So uh, I, I think it is uh, it's, it's helpful to be precise enough to for, for a little bit of focus. Okay, makes sense. Makes sense. So how long have you been working in the, uh, I guess they call it the AMR field, or is it called something else? Uh, AMR, AMR works, and there again, there's that M word, antimicrobial resistance, which, you know, but AMR generally, people in this space are generally talking about antibacterial resistance, as I've said. The, and so I've been, this my entire professional career, so I'm a, my, my deep background is that I'm a physician trained in internal medicine and infectious diseases. And I spent about the first 15 years of my career working as an academic medic. My focus at that time was on uh, new drugs for uh, fungal infections, and that's what I currently do as the chief medical officer of F2G. Um, and then about 15, a little over 15 years ago, I moved into regulated industry and uh, became the head of anti-infection development at a pharmaceutical company called AstraZeneca. And we ultimately brought several drugs uh, to, to market, uh, and I uh, was, you know, led that team during that time. We finally sold the, the business unit to some other companies as sort of the typical rearranging pattern of pharma. Uh, and I went freelance at that point and now uh, consult and help with uh, the development of antimicrobial agents uh, broadly across the entire industry. Yeah, I guess uh, a hot part of this topic is um – you know, antibiotics and how it doesn't seem like barely any are are coming out or maybe are even in in research. I don't know. Um, Yet we're having, um, you know, certain microbes that uh, are highly resistant to a lot of uh, antibiotics. What are your thoughts there? What's the state of the the industry? What's the state of care surrounding that area? Well, you've you've said it well. It's sort of there's this curious paradox. You know, antibiotics seem like a great thing to have. Uh, and why is it that we're so fussed about any microbial resistance? And you know, the the 
you know, a, a shorthand version of it is is to say that there there are three challenges. They're hard to discover, they're hard to develop, and nobody pays for them. And each one of those has lends the uh, support to the thing that drives companies in this space out of business. Uh, but you 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 know, and one one fairly pretty topical way to see it is through the, the this current lens of COVID nineteen. You know, think about you know, COVID-19, uh, you know, which is a coronavirus, and we've actually got some other coronaviruses around. You know, how about, you know, think about SARS, one that was a big news a few years ago. Remember that one? Well, SARS, SARS kind of came and MERS. Then, Yeah, SARS and MERS, they kind of burned themselves out. But they were, at the time, they threatened to do what COVID-19 has done. So let's just sort of rewind the clock to last summer. If I had said to you, Richard, I've invented a new drug for SARS. What would you have said? Well, I would say, uh, oh, wasn't that uh, like eradicated a while ago? Who cares? Yeah, who cares? And and I'd say, well, you know, it could pop up again tomorrow as a pandemic. Uh, and you'd say, okay. Uh, and nothing really would happen. And so the, 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 the challenge with an agent for SARS, and I could sort of invent the same story about COVID-19, you know, last uh, October. If somebody had discovered the virus in the lab and said, look, here's this virus, it could become a pandemic. Well, this was a, a movie, I would say, uh, my, my, work, my mortgage payment and my wife's support is going to kill me faster than a pandemic like that. Yeah, it's uh, a bad joke, well, you, you know, but, but, but that's kind of the essence of the problem. And another way to say it, and, and it's a bit of language that we tumbled into a few years ago when we were uh, thinking about this whole problem of antimicrobials is that antibiotics are the life extinguishers, sorry, are the fire extinguishers of medicine. And, and they really are like fire extinguishers in a lot of ways. You know, I, you know, I've got a fire extinguisher in my kitchen. You've probably got one in your house somewhere. And if I were to say to you, well, you know, have you used your fire extinguisher today? You, your temptation is probably uh, to say, no, you haven't really used it. Well, let me try another analogy for you. We'll come back to the fire extinguisher. Do you have life insurance? Yeah, yeah. That's something no one did, wants did, and no did, one thinks about, no one cares about. Yeah, did you use it today? No. Otherwise, I couldn't are do the you, podcast. Oh, well, are you sure you didn't use your life insurance today? Can I take it away from you? Well, I'd rather not. My wife wouldn't like yeah. that. That's right. And so it's one of those things where you know, you're, you've got life insurance, and it's the very existence of it is something you're willing to pay for. Um, fire extinguishers the same way. We as a community have agreed that it's a mistake to wait until the building's on fire to build the fire department and buy a truck and train some people to how to use it and put in some uh, a water supply. We do all that in advance. And every day when you go for a walk down the street and you walk past that fire hydrant, you are using the fire hydrant in a very real sense. Uh, it's not getting you wet, but everything else that it could do you are relying on it. It's what makes it safe to live, you know, in a densely populated urban area. We know if, if one if house or building A catches on fire, we can do something about it before building B. And indeed, we could probably shut it down, but well, it's still just a grease fire in the kitchen. And so, you know, that, that's the thing about about antibiotics that they're like that. One of their best and highest uses is I walk into the hospital, I look at the high end antibiotic on the shelf, and I say. That's wonderful that that's there, and I intend not to put it into anybody today unless there's really a crisis. And th- and that's the, the the economic challenge of antibiotics. It's a space where if I invent a new an- I invent a brand new high end an- antibiotic, and we've had 
Several companies do that recently. Um, brought it to market. Everybody says, wow, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I am so glad you did that. That's special. It's so special, we're not going to use it unless we really, really have to. And that, from a societal standpoint, that is absolutely the right thing to do. Every time you use an antibiotic, you run the risk of driving a little uh, creation of some resistance. You, so you don't want to use it unless you must, but when you want it, you want it now. Not tomorrow, not next week. You want it now. And suddenly its value becomes nearly infinite. Well, the deal is you can't have it unless you're willing to have it always ready in the pharmacy. And, you know, and again, to come back to COVID-19, we're now seeing the cost of not having a fire extinguisher. You know, the, the difference now, the difference between not having anything at all is life and death for, for some folks. You know, and, you know, six months from now, when we, when we better understand remdesivir and other things, it, it will become progressively safer to be exposed. But, you know, right now, so we'll not have, having a fire extinguisher, do again. All right, so question here. How about if you made a uh, microbe-specific antimicrobial or antibiotic instead of broad spectrum? Would that change the picture? I mean, not not a lot. You still have to get. You still have to use it. And and, and let's think about what it costs. What is the cost of creating an uh, an antibiotic? It's sort of that's the generic cost of creating any drug. The, the you're typically going to have spent between well, the industry estimate is one and a half billion dollars just to get to registration. Um, there's, but I, I've got some specific numbers recently for antibi- antibacterials, which are in the range of 500 million to a billion dollars. And the, the all-in cost. And a good example is a company called Acaogen, uh that brought a, a new mechanism and updated aminoglycoside to the market, and then went out of business. And they had spent, by most estimates, somewhere around 600 million dollars. Uh, at the time, they they went out of business and sold basically for for cash, uh, and that was just the cost to get the thing to market. If you then want to have it available on the market, you just want to you want you want to run the plant that makes the drug and have the supply chain, and and so so that it's possible for me in the hospital to say I'd like to use it and I can go get some in a reasonable period of time from some depot, maybe somewhere else in town. But, you know, within 12 hours, I can have it. You're going to need to spend another $25 million a year to run that plant. And there will be other costs that you have to do in terms of maintaining the data package. And after the initial approval, there's other work to be done. The round figure estimate is that at the moment you are approved, I hand you the approval, I hand you the facility that makes the drug, I, I, I introduce you to the people who know how to make the drug. You need a four hundred million dollars to break even ten years from now. And unless it's you something uh, a broken model, what's, what's the I, solution? Well, the solution is that we have to think about antibiotics like like fire extinguishers, or like like life insurance. Um, you, you, and there was we we put together a group, uh, mostly in Europe, uh, that ran like two thousand fourteen two thousand seventeen. Uh, this a project that was uh, designed to talk about the answer to your question. Well, what what are the choices? What are the different ways that you could fix this problem? And the group uh, spent a lot of time thinking about uh, how to define the project, uh, the problem, and what the range of choices would be. And broadly, the the group ended up uh, dividing the kinds of things you could do into two categories. There's what they call push, and then there's pull. And push incentives are things like grants, 
uh, you know, making funding available to, you know, small companies or to uh, academic investigators. And I noticed that you interviewed one of my colleagues, uh, Kevin Otterson, recently, who is the executive yep. director mm-hmm. of CarbX, which is a, which is a really just an outstanding concept. The U.S. government and Welcome Trust and uh, at this point several other governments have gotten together to put $500 million and a bit more than that into play to, to as early funding. So if you've got an idea and you want to get up into go from preclinical into phase one, you can get money for an idea. That's called push funding. But the but that's only one part of it. You then have to to pay for the existence of the drug once it's on the market, uh, and that's where pull funding comes in place. And so here we talk about the idea of if I bring an interesting molecule to market, I need to I we the community need to somehow pay for that drug like a fire extinguisher. You need to pay for it whether you put it into a human being or not. So it's so-called volume delinked reimbursement. Um, you, you, somebody says, you know, an example of it is something the U.K. government's doing right now. It's the first example we've ever seen of this in the world. The U.K. government announced, uh, you know, they've been working on the project for four or five years, but they finally got to the stage where they said, we are going to buy a couple of fire extinguishers, two antibiotics. We'd like to identify two antibiotics that we want to be sure we have available to us. And this is really the National Health Service of England that is doing this. And they are now in the process of uh, defining the rules of the road for companies to apply. And what they're hoping to do in, in round figures is contract with for two antibiotics, for each of which they pay £10 million uh, pounds a year. And that, and that what the 10 million pounds a year would buy them is the antibiotic, whether or not it gets put into a patient or not, fire extinguishers. I mean, we, we, stock, we stockpile vaccines, we stockpile emergency gear, and yep. why can't this be recast in that way? It doesn't make sense. It, 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 it could. It's a, it's a very similar concept. We are, uh, as you say, we're, we're quite willing to stockpile certain things. And there's a certain amount of that that's already happened. Uh, you know, BARDA, the, U- the U.S. advanced R&D agency, um, has some of that stockpiled. The, the, um, I should say the, the you know, BARDA has been focused on bio th- bioterrorism, bio threats, uh, and uh, and also to some extent pandemic threats. Uh, and, and so, and its scope has been, you know, constrained within that space. But we, you know, what we are now seeing, the you know, COVID nineteen is really waking a lot of people up to the whole notion of preparedness. And there's fundamentally, you know, no reason why it, you know, it couldn't be BARDA that chooses to, or there's the U.S. government's mechanism for having a certain number of fire extinguishers available. Entirely possible. There's also some legislation currently floating around, being developed, floating around is, is too loose of a term. It's being developed right now that uh, if it moves forward, would create for the U.S. a concept kind of like what the U.K. has done, that is to, identify, to define the idea that there's some antibiotics that need to be bought on a uh, we-just-want-to-have-it-available basis, and you've got to pay a, a reasonable amount for that. Uh, and that would actually, you know, that's the big fix. Uh, that would be the pull incentive that would make it possible for a company to make money in the antibiotic space so that they can get a return on, you know, what is hundreds of millions of dollars to bring the product to market. Well, what's the preference here? Is the preference to make a microbe 
you know, bad guy specific uh, antimicrobial or is it to do more broad spectrum? Broad versus narrow is an interesting puzzle. Um, and I'd say that to answer your question at a high level, the general focus remains broad, but sort of within certain parameters, I, I should say. And so let, let me take that apart. Um, broad is a relative concept. You, you can you can put bacteria into certain buckets, and and the most useful way in general to to bucket antibiotics is, um, let's say, syndromically. Um, if I want, if you develop, you know, pneumonia, not in the hospital, it's called community acquired bacterial pneumonia. The the list of typical causes of that is quite short, and and so. You know, only a couple of things I need to cover if I if I think you've got community acquired bacterial pneumonia. So an antibiotic that's broad enough to cover that is relatively easy to use uh, without needing a, a a whole lot of diagnostic machinery. And and the diagnostic machinery is actually kind of tricky for some of these diseases. For you know, it can be hard to know precisely what's causing your community acquired pneumonia because you know we all live in a sea of bacteria and many of the bacteria that cause illness are also normally present on our bodies. I mean, uh, that's uh, one of the big challenges uh, in this space. And so you typically want your antibiotic to be broad enough. Very, very narrow-spectrum drugs are are just, they're harder to develop and they're harder to use than the agents that have at least some breadth of coverage. And so for that reason, most drugs end up doing more than one bacteria. So, so is it helping or hurting that we're able to get, uh, you know, sequencing and genomic data much more quickly to identify if there's an overabundance of one pathogen, let's say? You know, it, it's one of those things where it, you'd think it would help a lot. Um, it, it has turned out to be harder than you might have guessed intuitively to take advantage of the advanced molecular technologies that we have these days. This, the sense of how you make a diagnosis really is so much tied up with, uh, tied into the fact that we, we are covered we, at all times with bacteria that could be pathogenic. You know, you take, so if, if I were to do a PCR test on any of us right now, you know, if they was looking for E. coli, I, you'd, you'd be positive. We'd all be positive. We got in our gut. There's no way to, to not have the, the signal of E. coli if I you know, take a reasonable sample from you. Um, and, and most of the time, it's not a problem. But, but do you currently have a, you know, if you develop pneumonia uh, in the hospital and I detect E. coli in your sputum, does that mean anything? Well, it may or may not, because it would, I would detect uh, E. coli in your sputum whether or not you had pneumonia. And, the, and that's, that's the challenge. Uh, and it's, it's important to differentiate it from some other things, like you know, tuberculosis is an easy one to talk about. With TB, it is never, ever, 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 ever normal to have the DNA signature of TB in your sputum. It's just not, you know, it's not a normal commensal. So if I detect anything, I can say, well, that's, that's TB. So I can set my sensitivity way up high. Okay. Whereas I can't do that for ordinary bacteria and the, and the far more common typical bacterial infections. Yeah, it's interesting, all these trade-offs. Hmm. Okay. So what, um, what uh, hopefully, the, the worst bacteria that are killing the most people, for instance, right now in, let's say, hospital settings or acute illness settings, 
are they ones that are normally there at all in people or unfortunately are they do they tend to be available in people as well and therefore hard to discern if they're the real problem uh, it, 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 it is frustratingly more the latter than the former. So the pathogens that are never, ever normal are TB would be an example, gonorrhea would be another, probably name a few more. So, you know, the, the viruses, mumps, measles, those are never normal. But the, the far more common scenario, like if, if somebody is, winds up in the hospital after a car wreck, you know, and they've... Uh, got a broken leg and maybe they have a problem with breathing because they've cracked some ribs or something. Uh, when they develop pneumonia, they're going to develop pneumonia with uh, the bacteria of their gut. It's going to be, you know, E. coli or Klebsiella. And those things, they, br- they brought it in with them, and there was nothing you could do to, uh, you know, take it away from them. As a matter of fact, killing all their E. coli would be a bad idea because the E. coli in their gut part of your microbiome. You actually need, you, you live in symbiosis with your bacteria. It's only when they get out of their usual spot that you're unhappy. Uh, all the rest of the time, you, you want them because they're doing some very interesting things down in your gut that are part of your vitamin production and stimulating your immune system and uh, all kinds of really helpful, healthy person stuff. Well, I mean, even an adjunct to giving antibiotics doesn't seem to be there. You know, uh, take these probiotics, take these prebiotics. On day three of an antibiotic course or day seven, you know, to get you back to a a more normal microbiome. I mean, I don't even see that as part of the standard of care. Well, yeah, I mean, and you can, and and I think some people, some people do, you know, take advantage of taking some yogurt or other sorts of things. That sort of stuff will help. Uh, I, I, um, anecdotally, I think it does. The, but the 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 broader sense, your question was narrow versus broad, and why don't we, you know, have antibiotics that have sort of surgical precision for the bug you want? Uh, I think it, it, it is a is a it's a very profound question. Why can't we be that precise? And you know, and in, you know, in, in Star Trek tricorder land, in theory, I could be that precise. Uh, you know, I, you know, at least you know, in, in some imaginary sense, I, you know, because at the end of the day, when I have pneumonia, it is usually due to one thing, and and if and in that circumstance, I could, in theory, reduce it to one therapy and try to leave everything else in my microbiome alone, in principle. Well, why not? How about this? Why not get? your microbiome shotgun sequenced every six months. Then if something happens to you and you're hospitalized and you have a terrible infection, they do the same thing and they compare the two and they at least have a sense of what normal was and then perhaps using a cocktail of very specific antibiotics get you back to the way you were by targeting the overgrowth of the bad ones to bring you back to a, you know, a regime that looked like before. Interesting. Well, um, I mean, there are parts of that that I think are this idea of knowing what your normal looks like and what how you how to get you back to normal. I like that idea. The thing that I think might still be the hitch and the get along would be that the just putting your microbiome back to some uh, we'll call it normal state might not be a swift enough therapeutic intervention to reverse the. Uh, the infection in your lung. I mean, I, I, and I think that that's a, uh, an idea that you know, when people talk about non-traditional therapeutics, non-traditional interventions, you can uh, you can interfere with bacterial uh, activities. For example, uh, virulence inhibitors. This concept of 
rather than kill the bacteria, let's just get in its way. And one that gets talked about a lot is things that cause the bacteria to no longer stick to you. That's a common uh, theme. You know, in order for a bacterium to infect you, it has to adhere to you somehow. It has to not get washed away by your normal processes. So what if instead of killing the bacteria, all I did was make it so that it couldn't stick? Well, that's nice, but if I've got an active infection and the bacteria is chewing its way through my lung tissue, is that fast enough to give me relief before the bacterium kills me? And, and the limitation of most virulence inhibitors has been that it has been really the speed and the, the potency of the response. You know, a, a true small molecule antimicrobial has an effect that is, you know, within hours, dramatic, you know, you know stunning. Um, the virulence inhibitors, you can see the effect, but they don't, they're just not as potent, it's not as fast. Well, I mean, if you want to get even more complicated, how about, again, looking at before and after microbiome and then doing a combination of some phage therapy, a little bit of phage therapy, a little bit of, you know, bacteria-specific antibiotics, a little bit of bolstering of the quote-unquote good stuff, and perhaps a therapy like that would be very complicated, and sadly, it'll probably never be approved, but that, uh, that may be the best way to nudge things in five different ways back to the previous. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think that it's at a at sort of a very high level, which point that makes good sense. And, and it's effectively what we hope happens when we give you, you know, a few days of an antibiotic and you start to feel better and, you know, and your your microbiome rebuilds itself and you're hoping that you, that you will sort of automatically, you, you will, by whatever, by whatever magical process you got your normal microbiome to begin with, you will restore it to something that resembles normality for an adult. And it is, you know, this, the, the microbiome stuff has intrigued us uh, just in you know, the whole area. The whole field's been just fascinated by microbiome. It, it, it's just wildly complex. And you talked earlier about, you know, how, how do I characterize my microbiome? You know, the, the complexity of sequencing and which parts of the sequence do I pay attention to? And then how do I put it back and you know because we don't grow a lot of these organisms we you know what's the proportion of this that and the other that you need uh it, it someday I'm, I'm hopeful that we will better understand what normal means and how to get back to it right now the it it's uh, to, to my read of the area it remains a big guessing game a lot of energy going into it and i would love to see somebody solve the puzzle uh, I, right now, it feels like it is, is such a complex problem that that we're, we're still sort of feeling our way into it. You you mentioned that you do some antifungal work. Um, is it any more difficult, or do you need a different set of tools to look at antifungal or antiparasitic or antibacteria or antiviral? Viral, right? You know, yeah. I mean, how different yeah. are all these uh, these creatures, and you know, can you apply a lot of the toolbox, or is it a whole new set of problems? It, it tends to be largely new sets of problems as you as you go from one space to the other. So let's just for a moment compare uh, bacteria and fungi. Um, fungi belong to a higher class of life called the eukaryotes, as opposed to bacteria that belong to to a class called the prokaryotes, and it has to do with the level of intracellular organization, for example, the, the eukaryotes all have a cell nucleus. They have, they, they have a, a higher level of organization. And you and I are eukaryotes, just as fungi are. 
And so we share a lot of similarities with fungi. And so it's, it, is, it has historically been easier to find antibacterial agents than antifungal agents. You know, right now on the, on the market, for, for bacteria, there are oh, God, probably at least 15 or 20 discrete classes of effective antibacterials. You know, you'll know some of them, you know, penicillin, sulfas, tetracyclines, uh, erythromycin, you know, all those sorts of things. You go into the fungi, where despite people looking over time, it really reduces to three major classes and two minor classes, and that's it. And and in the two minor classes, there's only one of each one of them. There's no variation there at all. And in the other three classes, effectively, if you're resistant to any compound in class A, you're resistant to all the compounds in class A. It's a... And so we've really only got a handful of antifungals, and, and part of the reason for that is that it's harder to find something that kills the bug without killing, that kills the fungus without killing us. So we, we sometimes joke it's really, really easy to kill uh, bacteria and fungi. It's easy. Steam, fire, bleach, they work great. The, the trick is to do so without harming you. And, you know, and this replays all the way back to the very, very, very first antimicrobial, Salversand, the, you know, when uh, Ehrlich discovered the arsenicals for syphilis. Um, he was looking for, he, he was actually startled to find this compound that, that actively reduced the, the, you know, killed off the treponemes and began to develop in human beings. And it certainly does work if it didn't kill you. And, you know, and there was, uh, you know, up until fairly recently, there was a parasite and parasites are all, uh, you know, share some of the same problems as fungi. We're, we're, we actually have a lot of affinities with them. The leading therapy for uh, the, the parasite called um, sleeping, that causes sleeping sickness, was a, an arsenical that had been developed in the 1940s that if it, it could cure you, but one time in 20 it would kill you. You know, that was the, you know, it was tough, tough, tough drug. Um, you shouldn't spill it on your skin because it would burn your skin. It's <laughs> just horrible oh, yeah. stuff. Uh, you know, imagine injecting that into your veins. What a deal! So, but but now, after many years of effort, there actually is a pill that treats that parasite. So, you know, it, it, there just aren't. It, you tend to have to solve the the fungi, the parasites, and the, and the viruses are another example. It's, it's almost a one by one phenomenon. Um, you know, the viruses are a particularly good example of that. The drug that the drugs that work for HIV work for HIV. They don't work for other viruses, and and it's just the, it's the exquisite specificity of the um, antiviral life cycle uh, enzymes that cause that to be true. There are a few cases where you got somewhat some generalizability of the antiviral across a few viruses, but it it tends to be really quite narrow, and, and so, so it, you, every um, one of those costs millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to discover. But uh, do you get the sense that there are broad-spectrum antivirals, broad-spectrum antifungals, or because of the biology of those creatures, it's unlikely that they exist? Um, for antifungals, you can get breadth within certain uh, limitations. Um, you know, the, the company I'm working with is has a compound that's that's pretty broad within a, a collection of fungi called the mold fungi, the the ones that are kind of filamentous, the fuzzy ones. And if you look at 
the other antivirals, sometimes they cover, I uh, said so the other antifungals, sometimes they, they cover broadly, sometimes they're a little bit more narrow. Um, but you look at the viruses, you know, the history with the viruses tends to be that they're, they're very one at a time. Uh, the, the, the closest, there, I mean, there are families within the viruses. There are you know, the DNA and the RNA viruses, and some of the DNA viruses uh, lump together uh, in, a, in a group that, uh, so the, the pox viruses are, all, are, are closely enough related that sometimes drugs work over two or three viruses. But it, it, they tend to they just they tend to be very very um, fussy about you know, what drug they'll respond to, and viruses are also tricky to develop for because they tend to be very host specific. So the the virus that causes um, you know pick up the there are pox viruses that cause smallpox causes disease in human beings, but doesn't cause disease in animals. And there are versions of those viruses that cause disease in animals but don't cause disease in man. So you end up struggling with even your, your, your fundamental models. So you take even just influenza. Uh, you know, that virus, you really the only, the only living system in which you can really get a model of influenza that resembles the human version of influenza is human beings. Um, the virus just doesn't, it just doesn't replicate in other uh, in other species, it is a, it is finely adapted to us, <laughs> and that's the only place where you can work. So it, it it actually even makes discovery harder because with you know with the bacteria, you know I can make a, a pneumonia model with with uh, the pneumococcus in a mouse without, and it's not exactly like the human disease, but it's a lot like the human disease. I can do that with pretty much any bacteria. I can create a disease in an animal that is close enough to the human disease to be a helpful and instructive mimic. I can also do that with the fungi. Uh, in general, I can create a model of fungal infections. Viruses, whoa, they're just they're completely different beasts. I wonder if there's, um, you know, I've learned recently that for a given bacteria, there's not just one phage, but there can be hundreds of, of different kinds and thousands. I wonder if, um, you know, if we're infected by a virus, uh, beyond our cells, uh, there could be bacteria that could be introduced to, I don't know, to gobble up the, uh, you know, the, the energy and the, the infectivity of a given phage or a molecule that could be created to do that, you know, to keep it busy. So it leaves us <laughs> well, alone. Interesting thing, you know, phage are, are interesting critters. Um, and, and, you know, clearly they are well described as the viruses of bacteria and they often kill but actually, you can clearly demonstrate that you can kill uh, bacteria with phage. Um, but phage are also an example of, of, of a very good parasitic adaptation because wh wh how, how, do phage, how do phage sustain themselves by living on bacteria? What would be an example of a really stupid phage, a phage that kills all the bacteria? You'd be, you'd be done and dusted. And that's actually an interesting thing about living in balance with things. So... You know, think about the E. coli in your gut. Your, you know, your, your fecal flora is full of variety of bacteria, you know, E. coli, some, 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 you know, a whole bunch of stuff. Would you describe those as parasitic? Well, right. no. You'd, you, you'd say, actually, I live in symbiosis with those things. As long as I stay in, the, in their spot and I stay in my spot, we're really, we actually like each other. Uh, and, and so, well, then you, if they like you vitamins and you feed yeah, them, then they're your parasitic. That's right. That's right. You know, and so, you know, that's a very useful relationship between the organisms. And so, 
this this notion of uh, you know what what does it mean to to be a phage who's going to kill bacteria? Well, if there was an uber phage that could kill all of the all of the host, that uber phage long since went away. And the inverse is that the phage that is that, that are currently existing um, have self-selected to not be the uber killer phage. Otherwise, they they would burn out. And and right. that in, in a way that's actually part of the reason why phage therapies for bacterial infections run up against at least this is my personal uh, I guess teleological analysis why is it that phage therapy does not you, know, you, you even put together cocktails of phage for a given bacteria why is it that it's hard to get above 90 to 95 percent coverage of the bacterial strains that are out there so I'm going to collect a bunch of phage that kill off you know bacterium X and I'd like to develop a, uh, enough of them to actually use it as a reliable therapeutic. People have done that, and they would, and they say, well, one phage will only get you know 60 percent. Here's let me find another one gets 60 percent. Let me find another one or another one. Let's put together five or six or seven of them. The the data, you know, I'm not a phage developer, but what I've seen in the companies that have done this is they struggle to get north of 95 percent coverage, even though they're they're picking a whole bunch of different phage. They're looking for them. They're struggling to get above 95%. And I think that reflects the fact that you know, you're a bad phage if you kill everybody. And there's a fundamental biologic selection mechanism going on with phage so that they stay just um, friendly enough with at least a subset of their target bacteria that they never run out of places to go. Well, maybe there's uh, some cooperation amongst the phages when they're, uh, you know, maybe there's quorum sensing. Maybe there's a lot of stuff going on where there's coordination. They say, "Hey, don't don't kill everything." You know? Yeah, don't don't kill everything. And and you know, I, I'm not a phage biologist, so I, I can't speak to whether there's even a, you know, plausible biology for quorum sensing in phage. But but this this notion that that phage, you know, the, the, they are a classic parasite, and their goal is to live. Their goal is to live. And you don't. You're a, you're a bad parasite if you kill all of the exemplars of your host. You just don't want to do that. So what's the? Um, I don't know. Is it just going to be a forever inching along? You know, <laughs> yeah, fungus by fungus, so. bacteria bacteria. What's the future? Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, you, you got to think so. And and you know, and if you will, if you know, I can sound like I'm, you know, a, you know, a terrible downer here, saying uh, all this resistance and all this difficulty, and there's all these newspaper articles about how hard it is. <laughs> But in general, we have been able to invent the antimicrobials that we needed. Uh, it requires, it can require a lot of effort. And, you know, and again, COVID-19 has given the entire world a, a visible lesson in, in what it takes to get there. The, but do I think we'll have a therapy for COVID-19? Yeah, I guess I do. You know, we've already seen that, that it's at least possible to invent, to show that one, antimicro, one antiviral has activity, remdesivir. You know, we don't know a lot about it yet, but it certainly did, in, at least in the early data, suggest that it was blunting the course of really severe disease. And that's kind of what you'd expect to see. Um, you know, and, and fingers crossed we'll also come up with a vaccine. But once again, it's going to be with a lot of effort to get there. And I think that is, you know, that's that's the lesson. But but are we done after we've done COVID nineteen? No, we're not. You know, think, you know, think about SARS. Think about MERS. Think about Zika. Uh, think about Ebola. You know, you know, right now, how much energy is going into developing something for Zika? 
I don't think there's a ton. You know, I don't know for sure uh, the total amounts, but it's certainly not something that seems to be getting you know lots and lots of energy. And and and, and until we uh, sort of think about the whole antimicrobial preparedness problem and are willing to support the industry even on days when it doesn't look like we need it, you know, did I need a did I need a drug for COVID nineteen a year ago? No, would I? Yet, uh, you know, today I'd pay a trillion dollars for it. Um, you, you wish we had, you know, the ability to, um, you know, maintain a, a reasonable level of preparedness for these uh, sorts of things so that when we need to have a, a tool to at least get us started, we've got it. And I, I think we will, you know, I think we're going to invent new antibacterials. Um, there are, you know, Carbex has some very interesting stuff in its portfolio. Cross my fingers, we'll get at least one or two really new antibacterials uh, over the next five years, and you know, crush fingers. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think there, the path forward is, is not bleak; it's just tough. Well, very good, well, John. What's the best way for people to find out more about, you know, your work in general? So, well, I, I one of the things I do in the industry is I, I maintain a, a website and, a, and I have a, a newsletter and a blog, and the, the newsletter is called AMR Solutions. Uh, so if you just go to amr.solutions, you can sign up. It's free. Uh, and I send out a newsletter. There's no schedule. It's just it's when I have something interesting to say. Uh, so when I, when I see something that if you're a developer, you're interested in the space that you ought to know, um, that's when I send out a newsletter. And all the old newsletters are posted on the website. And you know, and that's a, a pretty good place for somebody to get started with uh, thinking about this area. Just look at some of the recent newsletters, and you begin to find links that take you deeply back into the background material in space. I, I've been connected to all the big initiatives over about the, the past 10, 15 years, and so I try really hard to you know, take the knowledge I've got. And when I write a newsletter, I, it'll tell you not just what you need to know, but why you need to know it and how to read more about it. So. I, I make a real effort to communicate the, the background material. Well, very good. Well, John, it's been a good call. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, well likewise, thanks for making time. Appreciate your interest in AMR, and uh, stay safe, man. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.